certainly Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. (laughs) Podcasting from an underground studio flying under the radar, this is Dan. By day, I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience, and by night, I retreat into my subterranean lair and dig deep into the thoughts of mankind. And I'm Dave, sitting firmly atop the Great Canadian Shield in Northern Ontario. I'm a pastor by profession, and a part of that includes unmasking the messaging that comes at us each and every day. You're listening to the Not Informed Podcast. Where we're tracking the re-emergence of paganism in the West. All right. Well, welcome everyone to episode 18 of the Not Conform Show. All right, Dave, I'm pumped for this episode. We have a lot of important stuff to cover today. But before we get to it all, let's quickly cover some technical info about the podcast that might be useful to our listeners. And as we mentioned in our last episode, we're trying to incorporate section breaks into the episodes. And we started including an outline in our show notes with time codes. So, Dave, Could you briefly tell our listeners how they can make use of the section breaks and time codes, how to optimize their podcast listening experience, and also which podcast listening apps you recommend? Sure. I'm not sure we fully succeeded with the uh, the break markers, but it works in Overcast, which happens to be my favorite uh, podcast client anyway. So it's working for me. Okay, but, good. Um, having a dedicated podcast client is something that's essential to really take control of your podcast listening experience. And uh, there's mm-hmm. a number of good ones. Like I said, I like Overcast. That's the one I've been using for quite a while. But uh, there are a number of uh, good ones out there. Even the built-in iOS podcast client, simply called Podcast, is decent. And I think Google has something called Google Podcasts on Android that you just get from the Google Play Store. Mm-hmm. And those are good enough. But um, I also like Downcast on iOS and Pocket Cast, which works on iOS and Android, also has a lot of the more advanced features. As well mm-hmm. as I understand that Spotify has integrated podcasts into its catalog, so you can find us there as well. Yeah. So Dave, why do you prefer a dedicated podcast app over streaming off the website or using iTunes on the desktop, for instance? Well, the dedicated podcast app is going to allow you to manage your subscriptions. And for me, that's key anyways. And, oh, okay. and, and even more key is actually that it automatically downloads each episode when it's ready. And that's the essence of actually what podcasts are all about is that the the client goes and fetches your episode and downloads it automatically for you. Mm-hmm. And it can notify you that you've got a new episode. So you get into your car and your podcasts are all up to date with the latest episodes and they're ready to go. And you didn't have to do anything in order to prepare for that trip. Yeah, the built-in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts will do that. I primarily use the Apple Podcast app, and the latest episodes of the podcasts I listen to are always downloaded and ready to go. But are there some podcast apps that give you more features, Dave? Well, yes, the uh, the Apple and Google Podcasts will just they give you the basics, like you said, but there are clients with features that really make your podcast listening experience better. And Mm -hmm. one of the main features that I look for that uh, you want to look for maybe too is the ability to control per podcast notifications so that when, let's say, we release a new episode, you get a notification that there's a new episode that's live uh, and ready for you to listen to. Now, ideally, that's controllable per podcast so that you don't want to, you don't, I personally don't want to be bothered by the podcast that update daily or weekly. Uh, and like to turn those off for notifications and then just turn on the ones that are more less frequent so that I know when there's a new thing up. Oh, I didn't even know that you could do that. I receive regular notifications for all the shows I listen to, and I didn't know I could shut some of those down. That's a really cool feature. I've got to try that out. 
Well, I can't remember if the iOS built-in podcast lets you do it per podcast, but uh, okay. uh, the good clients like Overcast, like Pocket Cast, let you do it, right? So, mm -hmm. so uh, that's the good thing. Now, there's a um, another couple of features that I like. Uh, first of all, I like to have access to the show notes and good access, easy access to the show notes. Okay. So, for example, for our episode, we put a lot of work in the show notes. And I like Overcast because you simply swipe over and all the show notes are there and the links are live and you can check out the references and the articles and the YouTube videos or whatever immediately with minimum friction. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it drives me crazy. I'm listening to a podcast or a good show and they make some recommendation of a book or a, an article or a YouTube or whatever and you're in the car and you have no easy way to capture that information and so for that purpose we have detailed show notes you can yes. it's all there and in overcast um you can the, the links are live so you can hit them right out of there you don't even have to go to our web page and in overcast the time codes that we put into the show notes are also live so you can just use those to jump to the relevant sections kind of automatically sort of uh, to, to find stuff when you're going back to look for something or whatever yeah and we're purposefully actually trying to structure the episode uh, in terms of sections so that uh, it's easy to sort of find your way through and you can do that through these time codes yeah. Now, a couple of other useful features that I like. Uh, one is smart speed, which uh, shortens the silences and overcasts and uh, a few others have that feature. And for me, I look into my overcast and it says smart speed has saved you an extra 155 hours beyond speed adjustments alone. So, Whoa. That's, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've been listening to podcasts for many years. And so that's that's it takes time to get there. But that that's it doesn't affect the the uh, sound. It's not like I'm listening to podcasts at chipmunk speed or anything like that. It's just that it takes away a little of the silences. Now, our podcast, uh, Dan, you optimize all that kind of stuff. And so uh, maybe not so useful for our podcast, but for other podcasts, it's, it's 155 hours, right? Yeah. Uh, so it'd be like a few minutes per podcast, maybe. But if, if your listening time adds up uh, over yeah. many episodes, yeah, you get into the hours. Sure. Yeah, and I, I drive a lot because of my job as circuit counselor, and so I do I do listen to quite a few podcasts. Do you listen now, to the Not Conform podcast, Dave? <laughs> I, I, you know what? On time, on occasion, I have. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so I like to have the uh, a good driving interface, and I also like to have the configurable 50, the forward and back jump buttons. So maybe fifteen seconds for rewind. You're driving, you have to focus your attention on driving so you miss something so you can just go back only 15 seconds, not 30. Mm -hmm. And I also like to have a configurable forward jump button because on some podcasts where there's commercials, you, I want to set it to 60. I just want to blast through that stuff and, and keep listening. So, But, but we uh, have no commercials, right? Because <laughs> we have no commercials. That's we're right. completely self-supported, so there are no commercials. So you don't have to worry about that with this podcast. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I also like the fact that in, in Overcast, you can share either the link to the podcast or a link with the current time code or even a clip from the episode. And so sometimes my wife might be listening to something interesting and she'll send me that clip or send me that link and it'll end up in our podcast, whatever. So mm -hmm. that's a great feature. And you can actually do that on our website, uh, notconform.show. There's a way to send uh, little clips, share little clips there as well. Yeah, we definitely encourage our listeners to share clips from the podcast send clips out on Twitter or Facebook, 
Or as one of our listeners, Mavros, has done, put a link to the show in the comment section of another show that covers relevant material. And I think in Mavros' case, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong here, he made a comment on Mike Cernovich's podcast yeah. in which uh, Cernovich was discussing psychedelics and uh, maybe he disagreed with Cernovich a little bit, Mavros did, and so he just put a link to our podcast, and that drove a few listeners to our podcast. So That's right. we really do appreciate uh, appreciate you guys doing that, and we depend on you to share the podcast and to be our advertisers. Now, apparently, according to Mavros, there were Christians there who were appreciative of a critical view of, in this case, it was uh, psychedelics. So, yeah, yeah, because I guess Cernovich was was kind of suggesting that maybe they're good right they're useful and sounds uh, like it i'll have to check yeah. it check it out yeah. i'll have to check it out okay all right well that's a good review here of of uh how to use podcasts and maybe what podcast clients would be useful we hope that you can easily access the show so dave why don't we do a quick review of the last episode and then do an overview for today's episode sounds good okay so we've been talking about the idea most recently advanced by professor stephen smith that paganism is coming back again into the West. We've been covering this for the last few episodes. In the last episode, we talked about how various pagan views of sexuality are re-emerging and displacing the Christian views of sexuality in our culture. We focused on Greco-Roman pagan views of sexuality, their pornography and promiscuity, and their limited polyamory. And we mentioned how there were other pagan cultures that practiced all sorts of polyamory, such as polyandry, which is one woman with multiple male partners and group marriage and so on. So that's what we covered last time. All right. So today we want to cover more aspects of pagan sexuality, especially focusing today on slavery, prostitution, homosexuality, pederastry, pedophilia, abortion, and exposure. And we want to look at the impact of Christianity, uh, that Christianity had on pagan culture and how it transformed these things. So the same, I guess the same caveat would apply that we had in our last episode. If you're, yeah. if you're, um, you know, in your tweens or younger, then uh, check with your parents before you listen to this episode, because we're going to be covering some sensitive topics. So let's start the meaty part of the episode by talking about Roman paganism and the practice of prostitution, the practice of slavery, and homosexuality. So returning to the Roman world, recall that there was a lot of male sexual promiscuity, but the freeborn women were supposed to stay chaste. Now, if this was the case, an obvious question is, how would the young men engage in the required sexual exploration if the freeborn women were off bounds? Well, here's Dr. Stephen Smith answering this question. So Roman society made ample provision for sexual fulfillment by supporting numerous conveniently placed and affordable brothels and also legions of slaves. So evidently, the practice of rampant male sexual promiscuity involved the men engaging with prostitutes. And let's add in a quote here from our historian Carl Harper, who writes, quote, The solution was a high degree of tolerance towards sex with slaves and prostitutes, end quote. Dave, I must say that I was shocked to learn that in the Roman world, there was sexual exploitation of slave women on such a massive scale. Kyle mm -hmm. Harper writes a lot about this. And I have a string of quotes here that I'll just read back to back. Here we go. Quote, 
The High Roman Empire, writes Harper, was a genuine slave society consuming slaves as ferociously as any previous period and perhaps on a wider Mediterranean scale. Women accounted for at least half of the slave population and they bore the brunt of sexual abuse. In an empire of some 70 million souls, perhaps 7 to 10 million were enslaved, a proportion with few parallels in pre-modern history. One in 10 families in the empire owned slaves. The number in the towns was probably twice that. The ubiquity of slaves meant pervasive sexual availability. Slaves were social non-beings whose exploitation was unremarkable. End quote. So, largely because of the abundance of slaves in the Roman world, prostitutes were readily available and prostitution was practiced in the open. Now, I have a few more quotes here from Harper. Again, these are from different pages of the book, Mm -hmm. but I'll just string these together. He writes, quote, Prostitutes were in reality ubiquitous, and the sexual economy of the Roman Empire directly depended on the exploitation of their available bodies. Prostitution in the Roman Empire was purposefully conspicuous. It played a well-established role in the sexual order. The idea that prostitution prevented adultery— that the prostitute's body acted as a safety valve for male lust was already, by the high empire, very ancient, and it remained a vital notion across Roman history. The defining feature of prostitution in the Roman era, which gives Roman prostitution its particular tincture, is the pervasive influence of slavery. And I have one final quote here from page 47 of Harper's book. Prostitution was an exuberant part of Roman capitalism, end quote. So mm-hmm. the Romans had many slaves and they exploited the slaves, mostly the slave women, to serve as prostitutes. Yeah, Dan, and before we move on from this point, uh, going back to our thesis that these pagan ideas are being introduced and brought back and reintroduced through books and TV shows and movies, mm-hmm. it's no surprise then that all of these sword and sorcery books and shows like Game of Thrones and, and Andrei Sapkowski's The Witcher, which I, I was really surprised actually goes back to the 90s, the books mm-hmm. do anyways, mm-hmm. all of them have main characters visiting brothels as part of uh, their normal life. Oh, that's and interesting. It, it's portrayed as perfectly normal and not the least immoral. Um, and yeah. again, see, this is another attempt at normalization, and you can see that going back, especially in that fantasy, sword, sword and sorcery kind of fantasy genre for quite some time. Yeah. And so that's in the sort of the fantasy world and books and TV shows and movies and so on. But, but uh, one question we could ask is, how is prostitution faring today in the real world? Mm-hmm. And uh, well, in this regard, the West, I think, is returning to Rome full force. I got a quote here from an article published in Business Insider earlier this year. Here's what it said, quote, Mm. Brothels and red light districts have been a part of major European cities like Amsterdam and Hamburg for decades, and in some cases, centuries. But the current era of prostitution began around the year 2000, when the Netherlands became one of the first major European countries to formalize prostitution's legality and regulate it like any other industry. Germany, Greece, and others followed suit, though Switzerland has had full legal prostitution since 1942. Mm-hmm. Legalizing and regulating prostitution was supposed to make the trade safer for sex workers. 
helping them access critical health and government services. But by most accounts, it mostly resulted in turning prostitution into a major industry with hotel-sized brothels, brothel chains, and a cash cow of tax revenues. End quote. There you go. Yeah. And of course, currently, there's a growing human trafficking problem that essentially makes people into sex slaves. And uh, according to an article in USA Today, quote, there are more than 4 million victims of sex trafficking globally. A study from the United Nations International Labor Organization estimated 3.8 million adults and 1 million children were victims of forced sexual exploitation in 2016 around the world, end quote. Um, so that's from USA Today. And just as a comparison, there might be roughly 3 million people living in Toronto, uh, the city that's close to us. So think of all of these people in Toronto as sex slaves. That's that's like a massive scale. Yeah. And yeah. 1 million children. That's right. Yeah, there's 3 million Toronto proper, I think, and about 6 million all in the GTA. But uh, boy, that, you know, 4 point, you said 3.8 million adults and 1 million and 1 children. million children. So, so 4.8, 4. 8, yeah. let's say 5 million yeah. people. So that's almost yeah, 5 the whole million GTA. People. That's insane. Right? <laughs> no, yeah. it, it's quite pervasive. And I have this clip from, um, this is from Diane Sawyer on ABC that uh, talks about this. Actually, there's a documentary made on this. Let me play it for you. Tonight, sex trafficking, something happening right here at home. Our colleague Nick Kristoff of the New York Times and his wife Cheryl Wudan have made a remarkable documentary called A Path Appears, and they have been following women, often very young girls, locked into a life of prostitution by highly skilled profiteers, pimps. And you're going to hear Nick argue, when you look closely, these women are in fact not criminals, but hostages walking among us. Yeah, so notice that they're um, not criminals, but hostages walking among us. And essentially, these women are being trapped in prostitution, and it's a modern form of slavery. Yeah, a modern form of sexual slavery. Slavery, that's right. And, mm -hmm. and, and really, prostitution never really went away, even with the Christianization of the West. But for a time, it was pushed into the shadows, right? For a time, it became illegal and for a time, the Christian concern for women trapped in this and the girls and the boys, right, overrode that the d sinful desire of men to exploit other human beings in this way and uh, got pushed into the margins. And, mm -hmm. well, let's be honest, it was Christianity that led to the abolition of slavery in all the Christian parts of the world uh, because of the Christian uh, value, the, the Christian doctrine of the intrinsic value of all human beings. And... It's the Christian belief that all human beings are made in the image of God and equal of equal value in God's eyes that's led to the abolition of slavery in Christian lands. And it's that same Christian concern that cares about the women and the girls and the boys and some men trapped in the sex industry. And, of course, the physical and the emotional toll that exacts on their minds and bodies. Yeah, this is a very important point. And uh, I want to return to it later because I do have some good quotes uh, from our historians to support precisely what you're saying here, the role of Christianity historically in, mm -hmm. in abolishing slavery and prostitution and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the point I want to just quickly make here is that as we go back to pagan ideas and as pagan norms on prostitution come back, we're going to see an increased public acceptance of this form of slavery 
and an unwillingness to engage in debate about the ugly side of sex trafficking. Mm, right. Right. And it's the shift in public morals that allowed for someone like Jeffrey Epstein to do what he did for as long as he did. Yes. Um, if you, those of you who don't know about Jeffrey Epstein, he's a, here's a clip from 60 Minutes Australia that sort of sums it up. Jeffrey Epstein was a billionaire New York businessman whose vast wealth bought an arrogance that knew no limits. Damn the consequences, he acted as if he could have anything he craved. But what he desired most was sex with young women and girls. For years, he abused them at will. And such were the numbers of victims Epstein exploited, he started trading them around the world. He masterminded a sex trafficking ring, which enabled his rich and influential friends and associates to share in his perversion. Remarkably, those accused of complicity in this scandal include His Royal Highness, Prince Andrew. Oh, Prince Andrew, yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> the guy he... who doesn't sweat. <laughs> <laughs> the guy who doesn't sweat, yeah. And, and I think it's a fair to say that certainly Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this was, an, this was an open secret. Um, There's just a couple of days ago, actually, there's a clip from uh, Cindy McCain, Paul McCain's widow, uh, that they all knew about this. Here, let me play it for you. Yeah. We all knew about him. We all knew what he was doing. But we had no one that was, you know... Um, uh, legal aspect that would go after him they were afraid of him for whatever reason they were afraid of him yeah and this is i think this comes from a societal openness to this kind of trafficking and it comes from uh, going back to pagan ideas about sexuality yeah and certainly there seems to be an elite who's willing to either participate or turn a blind eye to these uh things going on and uh that's that's very disturbing yeah yeah so, Dave, in, in addition to uh, sexually using slaves and prostitutes, men in the Greco-Roman world would also commonly engage in sexual relations with one another, so with other males. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the Greco-Roman world, it was completely fine for men to have homosexual relations. Uh, but there was some caveats. This is uh, Smith again. Mm-hmm. Sexual gratification was subject to extrinsic limitations emanating from the ethic of manliness. So although homosexual intercourse was permissible, to be the passive or receiving partner was deemed disgraceful. In addition, a man should always be the master not only of his household and his slaves, but also of himself. So it was shameful to indulge sexual passions beyond the point of self-control. So one of the caveats was uh, what we can call the macho principle. For the Romans, homosexuality was acceptable for a man, but only if he was not on the receiving end, or in other words, that he was not the passive partner in the transaction. So male slaves were often used as the passive partner because they were not allowed to turn the tables, so to speak, uh, on, on the, the aggressing male. And now, mm. of course, uh, homosexuality is on the rise today, and uh, it's even infiltrating various churches. There are liberal churches that support homosexuality and even have homosexual clergy. And I even uh, recently read an RT article titled, quote, The Vatican Invests Over One Million in Steamy Gay Elton John Biopic, Men in Black, uh, end quote. So that's, that's the title. And uh, the article is based on an, an uh, Italian daily news article that, quote, 
released an investigative report detailing some of the more head-scratching investments the Vatican has recently made through the Malta-based Centurion Global Fund, including $1.1 million, or about 3% of the total production budget, put into Rocket Man, a film containing explicitly gay sex scenes, end quote. <laughs> so so uh, the Pope yeah. is funding homosexual movies. Yeah, great. Well, we have some we have some <laughs> clips of uh that pertain to that just coming up a little bit later in the episode. Yeah. And uh you know, the pagans are even trying to portray Jesus as a homosexual, and that's in the recent Netflix show The First Temptation of Christ. Did you hear about this one, Dave? Yeah, unfortunately I did. This yeah. is the one that uh was uh what is it Porto Lafundos or something like that? Yeah, the, something like that. Yeah, that's a Brazilian yeah. group, I think, that yeah. that did that. And and yeah, they're basically trying to uh portray Jesus as someone who was like a homosexual hippie. Mm-hmm. And uh that was one of the reasons actually I ended up quitting Netflix altogether. I got sick of them promoting this stuff, didn't want to support it. Yeah. But I think there might be a belief, Dave, among liberal Christians that if Jesus were alive today then he would be accepting of homosexuality. I think the thinking might be that Jesus was just a product of his time, a time when homosexuality was unacceptable. The common idea might be that Jesus is just an outdated prude who lived at a time where everyone was a prude. But that's a false understanding of history. Jesus lived in the Roman Empire. He was, after all, crucified on a Roman cross, and homosexuality was completely acceptable back then, with the caveat, right. of course, of this macho principle. Macho principle, yeah. Yeah. So, so let me make this perfectly clear. Jesus and the early Christians lived at a time when homosexuality was common and normal, and Jesus and the early Christians spoke against it back then, against homosexuality. So, of course, they would speak against it now. I think it could very well be that many liberal Christians have a false understanding of history. And maybe that's leading them to continue in these sort of liberal ideas that somehow Jesus would be okay with the homosexuality because we've evolved, you know, from the prudish history, historical times to the current free times. And that's just completely false. Yeah, Dan, that's a great point. And remind me to elaborate on that at the end of the episode when we talk about the Christian impact so I can illustrate that with a few Bible passages and put that one to completely to, to rest. Now, yeah. before we before we move on, uh, there's a, a great article that uh, one of our listeners, Peter, sent us. It was from Crisis Magazine. Uh, mm-hmm. t- it's titled, Why Judaism and Then Christianity Rejected Homosexuality. And uh, ah, okay. I it's a, it's a great article. It's like a 14-pager when it prints out. And there's a, a nice little paragraph here that illustrates this macho principle again from another scholar. So this is a, this is a quote, as Martha Nussbaum, if I've got that right, professor of philosophy at Brown University wrote, um, and she writes this, uh, ancient categories of sexual experience differed considerably from our own. The central distinction in sexual morality was the distinction between active and passive roles. The gender of the object is not in itself morally problematic. Boys and women were very often treated interchangeably as objects of male desire. What is socially important is to penetrate rather than be penetrated. Sex is understood fundamentally not as interaction, but as a doing of something to someone. Wow, yeah, that's that's completely consistent with what I read 
uh, from our historians like Carl Harper and uh, what Smith talks about. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a very yeah. different understanding or conceptualization of, of sexuality from the Christian point of view. And it really is about the other individual almost being like an object, right? That you dominate or are, are, or you are an object submitting to something. That's right. And you remember last episode, um, it was, um, I forget her name now, but, uh, the, um, the one I was talking about Mona Gamish, which we, that was, we played on that title in our episode title. And she talked mm-hmm. about, oh, and it boils down. You can regain lust, right? Yeah. And again, it's this dehumanizing, this, this depersonalizing. It's just the, the doing of something to someone, uh, as if that's what mattered. And that's a return to a pagan, a very pagan view of sexuality. This brings us to an even more detestable practice of the Roman world, that of pederasty, which occurs when a man sexually abuses a young boy. And this, surprisingly, shockingly, was common and normal in the Roman world. Mm. Historian Robin Fox writes the following in his book titled Pagans and Christians, quote, The Romans, rotation, a Christian who knew their city, Consider pederasty to be particularly privileged and try to round up herds of boys like herds of grazing mares. In lists of national characteristics, pederasty was considered the particular distinction of Gauls, end quote. And uh, the Gauls, by the way, were the Europeans who lived in parts of modern day France and Germany and Belgium and, and Italy, I think. And uh, some mm-hmm. of these areas were conquered by the Romans in around 200 BC. So they were absorbed into the Roman world. And evidently, uh, violation of freeborn non-slave boys was illegal in Rome, though it happened anyways. And much more common and acceptable was for male slave owners to sexually abuse slave boys. And so that's consistent with this general abuse of the slaves sexually. And here's a quote from Harper again. Quote, the Romans built one of history's most enduring and extensive slave systems, and the ownership of slaves would gradually shape virtually every social institution in Roman life, including pederasty, end quote. Mm-hmm. Pederasty was okay in the Roman world because it fit with what we call the macho principle. Uh, Harper writes, in the Roman context, the moral economy of pederasty was recentered around the bare fact of dominance. So, because the adult male was in the dominant position during an act of pederasty, it was not considered shameful. And so, this brings us back to this whole notion of of the the, the major principle being one of dominance. And so, it was totally acceptable then to abuse boys as long as they were not freeborn, even though that was going on anyway. Apparently, philosophers were known to abuse their pupils and people were always worried that the philosophers would, you know, get their hands on their sons. You know, if you're listening to this and you find this a little far-fetched, mm-hmm. um, this actually can, goes on, continues on in our modern world, in certain parts of the world um, that are still affected by these pagan outlooks. And mm-hmm. I found this article in the Atlantic called The Kingdom in the Closet. Interesting. And uh, you'll find it in the show notes. I bet you it's talking about the Muslim world. Well, it is. Yeah. This is in Saudi Arabia. So, yes. Okay. So I'm going to read it and it's, 
it's all a bunch of quotes strung together, but I'll just, uh, it'll work the way I've got it set up here. So, okay. So this is quote from the article. Sodomy is punishable by death in Saudi Arabia, but gay life flourishes there. Why is it easier to be gay than straight in a society where everyone, homosexual and otherwise, lives in the closet? In Saudi Arabia, it's easier to be a lesbian than a heterosexual. There's an overwhelming number of people who turn to lesbianism, Yamin said, adding that the number of men in the kingdom who turn to gay sex is even greater. They're not really homosexual, she said. They're like cellmates in prison. Oh my. This is surprising enough, but what seems more startling, at least from a Western perspective, is that some of the men having sex with other men don't consider themselves gay. For many Saudis, the fact that a man has sex with another man has little to do with quote-unquote gayness. The act may fulfill a desire or a need, but it doesn't constitute an identity, nor does it strip a man of his masculinity as long as he is on the top or active role. Oh, there it is again. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is a sociological kind of thing, modern-day Saudi Arabia, right? Yep, paganism in modern-day Saudi Arabia. That's right. And it actually explains this whole business of why um, the gay movement seems to be okay with Islam, maybe. Yes. I never understood that until you factor this in. Yes. So, all right. So, some Saudi men I'm, I'm reading here can't have sex with women. So, they have sex with guys. Francis, a 34 year old beauty queen from the Philippines, reported that he's had sex with Saudi men whose wives were pregnant or menstruating. And when those circumstances changed, most of the men stopped calling. If they can't use their wives, Francis said, they have this option with the gays. Well, it's so interesting that they use the word use when they refer to the wives. If they can't use their wives, <laughs> it's exactly. again the objectification, right? That's right. And that's that's why um, I think I like the, uh, the the Prager article where he was quoting that um, Nussbaum professor from Brown University where um, she says, you know, it's, it's sex is understood fundamentally not as interaction, but as doing uh, as a doing of something to someone, yeah, right, and very clearly, uh, this is this is how they approach it, right? Mm-hmm. So, continuing on, back in Gulf Arab Love, that's a chat room. The next day, I encountered Anjet Top, and this is uh, this is his um, screen name, right? Like who like said Natalia on a top? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. From 007? Um, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, and that's what they're, they're signaling something with this. Note the word top in there, right? Yeah, possibly. Who yeah. said he liked both men and women. Um, he too was married. In the absence of women, he said he'd go with a guy. I go in and put up an offer, he said. I set the tone. I'm in control. To be in control for Anjatop meant to be on top. Quote, it's not in my nature to be a bottom, he said. I asked him whether he was gay, and he responded, No, a gay is against the norm. Anybody can be a top, but only a gay can be a bottom, he added. The worst thing is to be a bottom. Yeah, again, this is the top, bottom, the the uh, active, the passive, the insertive, the receiving end. Yeah, all the, that's all here again. All this stuff, right? I mean, it's it's the idea is, is not that ancient because it's pagan and it's continued on. So let me finish here with one more quote. So getting back to this topic of pederasty, okay? Mm-hmm. Quote, in Islamic homosexualities, the anthropologist Will Roscoe shows that this status-differentiated pattern, um, whereby it's okay to be a top but not a bottom, has its roots in Greco-Roman culture. And he emphasizes that the top-bottom power dynamic is commonly expressed in relations between older men and younger boys. 
Yasmin, a student who told me about the lesbian enclave at her college, said that her 16-year-old brother, along with many boys his age, has been targeted by his male elders as a sexual object. Quote, she says, it's the land of sand and sodomites. Whoa! The land of sand and sodomites. sodomites. Yeah, I like that. Is that that a show title? No, we shouldn't use that as a show title. (laughs) No, I think we'll probably... (laughs) Pick something else. Let's stay away from that one. Yeah. Um, The older men take advantage of the little boys. Yikes. Dave, the American educator, puts it this way. Let's say there's a group of men sitting around a cafe... If a smooth-faced boy walks by, they all stop and make approving comments. They're just noting, that's a hot little number, end quote. So, I mean, this is all from this long-form article. It's quite, quite long. I forget, like 15 pages when you print it out. Um, I'll link it in the show notes. Very well worth reading because it's a complete eye-opener. And, and hopefully, we're not going to be getting this kind of cultural enrichment coming to the West. Hopefully. <laughs> That's right. It's certainly not cultural enrichment. You know, you imagine that the Islamic world would have very conservative sexual practices. But in fact, what's really going on is, is what's been detailed in these quotes that you've been reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's quite shocking. And it's it's totally pagan. And uh, right. we, we don't want this kind of stuff coming to the West. But the problem is we already have it in some of our institutions. Uh, yeah, you're talking about the Roman Catholic priest scandals, I think, right? Yeah, sadly, I think the most visible examples of current pederasty yeah. are the abuses going on in the Roman Catholic Church. I got a few clips here about that. Here's a clip from mm-hmm. the Washington Post about the bad priests in some U.S. states. The U.S. Justice Department has launched a probe into sex abuse in Pennsylvania's Catholic churches, escalating years of scandal to federal scrutiny. The Diocese of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Erie, Allentown, Harrisburg, and Scranton all told Reuters that they have received federal subpoenas. The grand jury uncovered... The probe follows a state grand jury report in August alleging over 300 Catholic priests in Pennsylvania had sexually abused more than 1,000 children over 70 years. And of course, it's not just uh, in Pennsylvania, right? I mean, there's this is happening all over the United States and in fact, all over the mm-hmm. world. Here's a clip from yeah. a report that uh, that uh, was associated with an article from The Guardian about the Catholic Church-related abuses in Australia. Listen carefully. Between January 1980 and February 2015, 4,444 people alleged incidents of child sexual abuse made to 93 Catholic Church authorities. These claims related to over 1,000 separate institutions. The claim survey sought information about the people who made the claims, where the gender of the person making the claim was reported. 78% were male and 22% were female. Of those people who made claims of child sexual abuse received by religious orders with only religious brother members, 97% were male. The average age of people who made claims of child sexual abuse at the time of the alleged abuse was 10 and a half for girls and just over 11 and a half for boys. Yeah. So notice that the majority of the cases are male priests abusing young boys. This is what we've been talking about in terms of pederasty, right? Mm-hmm. And the boys mm-hmm. are young before they hit puberty. This is exactly what was going on in the Roman world. 
And in fact, uh, I, th- I think I read that one of the rules was you could abuse a boy b- as long as, you know, he didn't get facial hair yet, right? Before he hit puberty. And mm-hmm. uh, because if he uh, started to get facial hair, maybe he was getting strong enough that he could turn the tables and then that would be bad because you'd be the passive receiver um, and that would be shameful. But this is exactly what was going on in the Roman world. And, and this is not just in Australia. Again, we can go to other places. Um, I've got one here from Guam. I won't play it. Uh, But the main point here is that you got male priests abusing young boys before puberty, very similar to what was going on in the pagan world, which I think leads me to make the hypothesis that what we're seeing in these cases is the continuation of paganism within the Roman Catholic Church, much like they continued with pagan art and the like. Mm -hmm. Another hypothesis is that you just have people who are depraved that seem to go into these priestly positions and because they're not allowed to marry in the Roman Catholic Church, maybe they you know, do all these bad things. But the other possibility is, as I just said, it could be that it's actually a continuation of just pure paganism in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, I have a segment, and we're not going to do it today because it's going to take us down a little rabbit hole, but of the, uh, the pagan worship of the Pacamama idols at the last uh, Amazonian Synod. I have a whole bunch of clips for that. I've been kind of holding them over. Yeah. And maybe we can just put them in a little short or something and, and discuss it and put it out there because it's, it's. Uh, I, I would agree that there's definitely these disturbing pagan elements that are, uh, that are sitting there under the surface in the Roman church. And if the Roman church can't deal with it it's going to be its undoing in the end yeah because that's not christianity it's very explicitly contrary to christianity but it's completely consistent with roman paganism which is why i put forward that hypothesis now dave many many secular atheists find the abuse of children to be and by, by the priest to be abhorrent and and rightly criticize the roman church yeah. But I think it's interesting to think about why the secularists and the atheists find the pedophilia of the priests so reprehensible. I think one thesis is that they find it reprehensible because they, these uh, secularists and atheists, are actually influenced by Christianity, the very Christianity that they reject. Mm-hmm. They're riding yeah. the coattails of a Christian ethical worldview. So remember, without Christianity, Roman paganism might have dominated to this day. And if so, then people would likely be involved in pederasty today. And it would just be a normal thing. It's a crazy thought, but the secularists just refuse to acknowledge their debt to Christianity in this regard. And if Christianity continues to decline in the West... It's at least conceivable, if not if not probable, that our culture will return to this disgusting pagan practice. And then I think you'll see the secularists and so on maybe even embracing the practice more broadly. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, the Prager in that article I mentioned from Crisis Magazine also makes the point is that it's Judeo-Christianity that, that really is the aberration then if you take it in the in the wider context of paganism. Right? Yeah. And, and it's only as, as uh, um, Ju- Judaism and Christianity and the, the, essentially the faith that's in the Bible, the biblical worldview starts to take over and, and has a, a wider grip globally that you th- see these things beaten back into the shadows. But- yeah, yeah. And in the, 
In the Roman world, it was really the advent of Christianity and, and the rise of, of Christianity that seemed to topple the pagan worldview. But we, we should be clear that these ideas were present in Judaism uh, all along. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're in the Old Testament. It's just that the Jewish communities would sort of keep to themselves and they wouldn't uh, seek to influence the pagan world. The Christians, on the other hand, were very evangelistic, right? So they, yeah. they began to be a problem <laughs> for, for yeah, the Romans. So they, they, they had a bigger impact. But before we get to that, let's, let's talk about just to keep the catalog going, because yeah. another way that uh, this these ideas are being pushed in our society. The, this uh, pederasty is just basically a form of pedophilia, right? Yes, indeed. And um, pedophilia just doesn't uh, discriminate gender-wise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, there's even law- new lawyers speak called transgenerational love on this. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to normalize it in, in popular culture. So back in 2015, uh, Salon ran an article by a guy named Todd Nickerson titled, I'm a pedophile, but not a monster. And it had the following plea just under the title, but even above the byline, it said, I'm attracted to children, but unwilling to act on it before judging me harshly. Would you be willing to listen? Okay. And I'll, I'll link the uh, Salon eventually pulled this article. So the, it's going to be uh, from an archive and mm. The uh, I have a clip with this guy, and the original clip is no longer available because it had this. They pulled it, but they it had this disgusting, dreamy ballet sequence of this little girl that he's talking about, and the the um, the clip that I have is very similar though. So um, just listen to this, and we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And she was just standing there, watching me, and I remember looking up and just seeing her, and just going, "Wow, she's beautiful." I knew I was in deep. I, you know, I had fallen for the girl. The last thing I wanted to do was hurt her. Sorry, I didn't do the editing on this. I took on a, a regular babysitting gig. She was five. Uh, she was a precocious girl. She was advanced for her age. She was also very independent. A lot of my fantasies actually revolve around little girls who are in some way more Yikes. powerful than I am. Eventually, my attraction became, you know, overwhelming to the point I had to go relieve myself in the bathroom. That's when I had to leave town and get my head straightened out. I didn't abuse her because I knew the harm that it could cause. Also, you know, remembering the fact that I was abused, it's probably contributed to my own sexuality developing. I have never sexually abused a child, and I never will. Now, I've gotten to know a lot of pedophiles online. My sense is that we're a much larger group than society actually thinks we are. The terms uh, pedophile and child molester are used interchangeably. This is wrong. A pedophile is, strictly speaking, somebody who has a sexual attraction to children. It's important to realize that not all pedophiles are child molesters and not all child molesters are pedophiles. When I first told all of my family, they had a hard time dealing with it. They had a hard time reconciling what they knew about me versus the you know what they thought they knew about pedophiles. I went through a a severe bout of depression and and social anxiety that lasted a few years. A lot of that was basically me coming to realize that I wasn't going to have a family. I wasn't going to fall in love with a woman and have a normal life. I'm resigned to the fact that, uh, you know, I'm basically going to spend the rest of my life alone. This is not something I chose. What person in their right mind would choose to be the most reviled sexuality in the world? My purpose is basically to go out and educate people, allowing people like myself to uh, to express themselves, to, to come out and uh, be open. Society 
makes it harder by persecuting us because a lot of us become fatalistic. We just start to think it doesn't matter what we do or say, they're going to hate us anyway. We need to find some kind of middle ground where society and pedophiles can come together. We love kids. We want to protect them too, you know, and we're on society's side on that. Oh, that's frightening. It is. And I mean, if you, hopefully you were revolted when he's talking about going to the bathroom and relieving himself, um, yeah. that wasn't to do number one or number two, right. Mm-hmm. That he's talking about. And that's, that's the, the original video that went with this interview had this little dreamy sequence while he's saying that this little dreamy sequence of this little girl in a ballerina outfit twirling down the hallway. Right. So it was, I mean, it was very, uh, it's like the editors wanted to put you in the eyes of a pedophile and to make you feel some level of, of affinity, affinity or attraction to this little girl. It was disgusting and it's good that they pulled it, but that there's going to be, you know, there was pushback, but what we're going to see, I think is a little retreat. Okay. But then I'm betting we're going to see a slow increase in attempts to normalize and rehabilitate this image of pedophiles and and pedophilia because the whole point of these articles and there was a few of them this was just the one of them that kind of uh, caught my eye was is to create sympathy for this deviant form of sexuality yeah and the first step here see he he separates out the action from the feeling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he would say okay the action might be might be not good right but the feeling is okay And Mm -hmm. he says, I want to be open about and express myself. So the first step is to have everybody accept that these kinds of feelings are okay. Uh, And then maybe the society can move from that to the next thing, to the actual action. Yeah, Um, that's right. and, And notice also that he is framing it as though he didn't choose this, that he was born this way. And I want to... Just let's put a pin in that because we'll come back to that a little bit later. He's arguing that he has no control over this. Uh, he essentially yeah. doesn't have free will uh, to be able to do anything about it. Right? Yeah, I've got a good clip on that actually in a minute. Yeah, and I guess the the, the Christian perspective here, uh, Dave, and you know, chime in on this obviously mm-hmm. is that it's it's good that a person who has those kinds of compulsions is not acting on it. Yeah. But the Christian perspective would be different from what we heard about in that video because it would say that the feeling is also deviant, and so the feeling is sinful and it shouldn't be accepted. And that's got to be something that's dealt with as well. Um, Absolutely. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think this is so pervasive, Dan, that uh, that's the reason why they're now trying to normalize it as a sexual orientation rather than just some kind of deviance. And I've got this clip from a 2018 TEDx talk at the university of Würzburg by a German medical student uh, by the name of Miriam Heine. And the title of her talk was Pedophilia is a Natural Sexual Orientation. And so here's about a minute and eight seconds from the middle of that talk. Let me be very clear here. Abusing children is wrong without any doubt. But a pedophile who doesn't abuse children has done nothing wrong. I want to quickly summarize where we are at the moment. According to current research, pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual orientation, just like, for example, heterosexuality. No one chooses to be a pedophile. No one can cease being one. The difference between pedophilia and other sexual orientations 
is that living out this sexual orientation will end in a disaster. So let's think about Jonas again. How can we help him not to cause such a disaster? How can we help him not to live out his sexual urges? How can we prevent child sexual abuse? Yeah, so notice she says, according to current research, pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual orientation, just like, for example, homosexuality, right? And no one chooses to be a pedophile. No one can cease being one, she says. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then she goes on to argue that pedophiles need to be not ostracized, but accepted, encouraged to live celibate lives. That's her argument. Yeah, well, Dave, what do you think would happen if this recommendation was made regarding homosexuals? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that, that would be a part of uh, the Christian approach to homosexuality when other therapeutic approaches have been unsuccessful, right? But that, of course, has been met with great opposition and great derision and has been mm -hmm. um, even outlawed that those kind of ideas have been outlawed in some jurisdictions. And yeah. I mean, I think the most insidious thing about this is going back to what we were talking about before is is that uh, this idea that pedophilia is an unchangeable sexual or sexual orientation uh, mm -hmm. and that no one chooses to be a pedophile and no one can be cease being one. And I think if this kind of rhetoric continues to be tolerated, we're not only going to start seeing bans on therapy, just as is happening in homo with homosexuality and gender dysphoria in some places, yeah. right? Uh, but we're going to also start seeing an acceptance that, well, there's going to be a certain amount of victims. Yeah, and soon there may come the narrative that that these that the children aren't really victims, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah. that in fact they're being given experiences that will help them develop and grow. They'll even spin yeah. the victims as not victims anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully not. I mean, that would be a very particular Western aberration because I think even yeah. in the land of sand and sodomy, they see that something <laughs> is a little bit off there, right? Yeah. But, 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 um, and and they're starting to wake up to that if you read the rest of the article. But, but um, you know, in in pro-immigration Europe, there you've got these pro-immigration women that get raped by the migrants, and then they console themselves that it's, oh, it's just a part of their culture. Right. Right. So yeah. um, they know something's wrong, but they don't know how to say it's wrong. Yes. Yeah. Well, Dave, just uh, this is this is really frightening. But I have to sneak in a clip here from uh, comedian Ricky Gervais just to light, lighten the mood a little bit. This is part of his opening monologue during the recent Golden Globe Awards. And remember, he's speaking here to the Hollywood elites. Look, talking of all you perverts, it was a big year. It was a big year for pedophile movies. Um, Surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. That's Ricky Gervais laying it out there in full view. <laughs> this is in front of these Hollywood elites. He's calling them perverts <laughs> and, and talking about how they're making pedophile movies. That was a great uh, hosting, that's for sure. Yeah. And of course, there have been allegations by actors who are now adults who say that they were sexually abused when they were child stars mm -hmm. by adults in the industry. And a good example is Corey Feldman, mm -hmm. uh, who starred as a child in numerous well-known films, including, uh, I think it was movies like The Goonies, Stand By Me, Gremlins, maybe Friday the 13th, and a whole slew yep. of other ones. Yep. I think he was a voice in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
maybe it was Donatello, the voice of Donatello. I can't remember exactly, but like this guy was very, very popular. He was one of the mm-hmm. mega child stars. And uh, anyways, he's come out later uh, as an adult now saying that he's been abused as a child. Here's just a backgrounder clip from yeah. Megan Kelly today. So Megan Kelly interviews him, but here's the backgrounder. Well, actor Corey Feldman was a sensation as a child star. He lived the Hollywood life, befriending major celebrities like Michael Jackson and others. Now as an adult and with headlines every day about sexual harassment in Hollywood, Feldman says he feels compelled to repeat his long-held claims about what happened to him as a child actor. And he says what happened to other child actors like him. And here is a a clip of Corey Feldman's accusation. I can tell you that the number one problem in Hollywood was and is and always will be pedophilia. So that's the number one problem. Elijah Wood, uh, who also reached stardom as a child actor, has also claimed that Hollywood has a child sexual abuse problem. And uh, I have a report here from Entertainment Tonight. Elijah Wood's shocking allegations against the entertainment industry. In a new interview with the Sunday Times, the former child star alleges that pedophilia has been a real issue in Hollywood. He tells the publication, quote, There are a lot of vipers in this industry, people who only have their own interests in mind. What bums me about these situations is that the victims can't speak as loudly as the people in power. That's the tragedy of attempting to reveal what is happening to innocent people. They can be squashed, but their lives have been irreparably damaged. The 35-year-old adds, if you're innocent, you have very little knowledge of the world and you want to succeed. People with parasitic interests will see you as their prey. I can get a good career doing this. You know, it's going to be good. Wood says he was not a victim of abuse because his mother Deborah protected him and he avoided those kinds of situations. He goes on to allege that even as an adult in the industry, he has been, quote, led down dark paths to realize that these things probably are still happening. So, yeah, you've got the Roman Catholic priests abusing uh, mostly boys, and then you've got these um, Hollywood elites abusing children. So this is this is really going on in yeah. our world today. Well, I have an article. I'll link it if I can find it again. There's a, a very recent case uh, that's uh, now being sued, and nobody wants to report on this, but it's a mom who with a with a son who is a child uh, star, and she alleges in this article that apparently all these child actors are. Um, taken to parties where they're plied with uh, copious amounts of alcohol. And this is in full view of all the Disney executives. So. Yeah. Yeah. This is crazy. And, and, you know, we should return to our main thesis here. Why do we see leaders of the Roman church, the titans of the entertainment industry, the wealthy elites like Prince Andrew and Epstein, the politicians like Clinton and the so-called intellectuals, all promoting sexually deviant behavior. And why Why do they all welcome these sordid sexual practices from other parts of the world? Well, one explanation is that the elites in the West are simply promoting the Roman pagan worldview. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's always been there percolating in the background. It was just suppressed during uh, the popularity of Christianity. But now that you see Christianity starting to contract, the paganism is coming out. And uh, we're now welcoming all of this into uh, our our culture and it's coming from other parts of the world that haven't had Christianity and have been sort of more pagan all along. So really yeah. what we're seeing, I think, is paganism all over again. It's paganism all over again. This is 
Storm Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. Now, if you thought that it couldn't get any worse, well, you're wrong. After learning about all the sexual promiscuity engaged in by the Romans, one obvious question you might have is, what happened to all the offspring? Surely, there must have been a lot of unplanned and unwanted offspring. Well, there were indeed a lot of unwanted uh, pregnancies and children from all the sexual escapades. The Romans tried various forms of contraception, but that didn't really work. And so the Romans, like the Greeks, practiced abortion and also what's called exposure. So with regard to abortion, Fox writes, quote, abortion was freely practiced, end quote. And evidently they used various concoctions made from plants that might have caused abortions. And there were also some surgical techniques that were used, which involved the use of blades and hooks and spikes. And uh, there was also the practice of exposure. Now, exposure refers to situations in which the Romans took a baby that was born and literally dumped him or her outside the city wall. And many of these babies would die, of course, but some were taken and then groomed as slaves, likely as slave prostitutes. So they would take mostly the females and just groom them as slave, slave prostitutes. Exposure was practiced by the rich and the poor alike. And uh, our historian Robin Fox writes, quote, inheritances were shared among sons and sometimes daughters. Too many children could ruin an estate. And exposure of babies was therefore practiced by rich families as well as the poor, end quote. So this was, there was some economical pressure here to ensure that somebody didn't have too many children. And uh, mm -hmm. so if the children came along and they didn't want them, they would just chuck them outside the city wall. And uh, that was, that was practice. And, and in some parts of the pagan world also, the children would be actually sacrificed to, to certain idols. Uh, but, but that wasn't very common in, in Rome around the time of the rising of Christianity, but it did occur in the pagan world. Yeah, and in the Old Testament, of course, they sacrificed their children to Moloch yes. to ensure whether it was the fertility of the earth or good crops or whatever. I mean, this this kind of sacrifice of babies for economic gain has been going on for a long time. Now, what's changed, though, is the rationale. And, and today, this uh, this idea of, of course, has come back in our into our culture with the concept of abortion. Mm -hmm. And what's changed, though, is the rationale, because we've made abortion into a virtue of, of female empowerment, right? Abortion has, as some say, they'd say, has become the sacrament of the left. Yeah, and rather than it being just like maybe a, a necessary evil, it's actually yeah. become, as you say, a virtue, a, a sacrament, that, yeah. That's right. I've got a couple of clips that illustrate this actually quite well. One is a clip from Michelle Williams, and this is from the speech that she gives when she accepted her Golden Globe just a little while ago, okay? Mm -hmm. I've tried my very best to live a life of my own making, and not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I could stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over, sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I had carved with my own hand, and I wouldn't have been able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose. Wow, an applause for that. that that's shocking. Do you hear them? Somebody's yelling, preach, 
preach in the background. Yeah, that's related and, to and your sacrament. And if you watch this concept. video, yeah. If you watch this video, it uh, the camera goes in and zeroes in on a whole bunch of these very popular starlets, and many of them have um, uh, they're 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 profoundly affected. They're teary eyed. They are um, they're having a religious experience almost to her little little sermon here. Wow. Okay, I'll I'll just finish playing it for you. To choose when to have my children and with whom, when I felt supported and able to balance our lives, knowing as all mothers know that the scales must and will tip towards our children. Now, I know my choices might look different than yours, but thank God or whomever you pray to that we live in a country founded on the principle that I am free to live by my faith and you are free to live by yours. So women, 18 to 118, when it is time to vote, please do so in your own self-interest. It's what men have been doing for years. Yeah, so she's talking about vote abortion. And when she's talking about her right to women's right to choose, of course, she's talking about the right to be able to kill your baby when it's inconvenient for you to have one. Yeah, um, she kind of right? tries to sneak in afterwards to choose of when to have and with whom. But yeah. <laughs> but really, it's pretty clear that what what she means before the applause is is whether or not to abort. It's it's actually interesting because it's not that easy to find clips of the whole speech, but you can find the whole of it online written out. And, and she says, this is just before the part where I played it because otherwise I couldn't find any good audio uh, mm -hmm. to be, to, to play the whole thing. It was, it had all kinds of junk in it usually with commentators, but yep. she says this, when you put this in someone's hands, she's talking about the trophy, you're acknowledging the choices they make as an actor, moment by moment, scene by scene, day by day. But you're also acknowledging the choices they make as a person, the education they pursued, the training they sought, the hours they put in. I'm grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made, and I'm grateful to have lived in a moment of our society where choices exist, because as women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. And so, I mean, other, other than rape, what's she talking about? Well, she's this is a nod to that whole pedophile culture mm -hmm. and, and sexual abusing culture of Hollywood, right? Obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But she's saying that, look, this Golden Globe that this Academy, I, I don't know who gives those things out, but uh, uh, has given me is acknowledging that I made the right choice to kill my baby in exchange for the success that I now have as an actor with my career. That's what she's saying in yeah. the speech. Yeah. Right? And, and the fact that the whole audience is tearing up and all these and women are tearing up and cheering her on tells you where they're coming from and what they're probably their own personal experience have been. Yeah, they're all sharing the same thing. moment <laughs> and, 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 yeah, the same, exactly. and the same experiences. Yeah, you know, actors do seem to be increasingly using their platform to, to promote their worldviews, which gets really annoying because they're in no position to lecture the rest of us. And related to this, Dave... <laughs> Uh, here's what comedian Ricky Gervais has to say in his intro to the Golden Globe yeah. Awards. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama, yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing, made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, 
Don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, <laughs> right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god. And, and, and he swears at this point. And <laughs> <laughs> get off the so, stage, he says, you know. <laughs> It's already uh, three hours long. Yeah, so he, <laughs> he says get off the stage, but he uses some foul language yeah, there. But yeah, yeah actor spent less yeah. time in school than Greta Thunberg. <laughs> yeah, who's gallivanting the globe instead of going to, <laughs> going to school. That's right. And yeah, uh, they're in no position to lecture us. And he's, he's absolutely right on that. And, you know. No, that, actually. Yeah. This apparently this echoes um, uh, a speech given by now. I've, I've, I've lost it now. It's it's uh, it was a famous uh screenwriter that uh, said this a number of years back and okay. uh, he's kind of echoing that sentiment and the reality is is that the, the Hollywood and the, the the script writers don't want this because people are getting fed up with the actors look the messaging the subversive messaging is in the movie and you just act the movie and then shut up right right, right because, because this is just too overt it's too easy to rebel against this kind of nonsense when yeah, they give yeah. these the people abortion get, speeches the, the people get tired of it right and then just try yeah, to write exactly. Hollywood off Ah, okay. exactly. So I see. So I think, I mean, he wasn't speaking from his own. He had a script that was built for him. Yeah. And it was meant to try to bring people back on board. Yeah. He's part of the system, but of course he's part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just his persona is the, uh, the, the people's persona, right? Yeah. The rebel. So yeah, that's right. Now look, this rhetoric regarding abortion is, it got turned up a notch recently in this Netflix comedy show with Michelle Wolf. And I have a, a kind of a harrowing, um, send chills up your spine little section from her talk where she talks about how her abortion empowered her. Yeah, Listen but Dave, to this. Dave, so that yeah. was Michelle Williams before. This is Michelle Wolf, a different, different person. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. Good point. Thanks. Yeah. And we don't talk about abortion in a real way. We talk about it in a very legislative way, but not in a real way. So I think a lot of women have a lot of apprehension surrounding it. You know, we talk about it so negatively that you feel like you should have this sense of shame after you get an abortion. Well, you can feel any way you want after you get an abortion. Get one. See how you feel. Wow. You know how my abortion made me feel? Very powerful. You know how people say you can't play God? That's shocking. Disgusting. And then I crossed the street very carefully. Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking, right? So, uh, I, I mean, she just outright play, talks about life and death, right? Playing God. It's all about female empowerment. And this is the difference, actually, that I think we have. Um, that Babies have been killed for the economic gain forever. But uh, this, this rationale, this way of understanding it, uh, takes it into the realm of, um, I think... Uh, it's, it's, it's satanic, really, yeah. right? And she's just encouraging them, go try it and see how powerful you're going to feel. Um, yeah. The, yeah, it's, it's yeah. absolutely, never you, mind that you can't come, you know, you don't just undo that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about, uh, abortion being the sacrament on the left. And so I decided, okay, well, let's just, let me just Google that. And there's actually a book that was titled sack, the sacrament of abortion, 
Wow. Uh, by Jeanette Paris, PhD. And it was, uh, she's writing in French. And the original 1998 edition, the title was translated The Sacrament of Abortion. Then later on in 2007, they changed the title to The Psychology of Abortion. But <laughs> oh. he, he, yeah, here's the Amazon description, okay? Quote, issues of life and death, love and responsibility are the core of every religion. This is why the English translation of this book was originally published with the title, The Sacrament of Abortion, as it shows that the decision to abort may also spring from a religious feeling that it, that, that it is the right thing to do both physically and spiritually. As Jeanette Paris writes, abortion is about love, life and death. Since its original publication, the book has been widely used in abortion clinics in Canada and in France and has even been given by some doctors to each and every woman who has had the procedure along with painkillers. Wow. Okay. So according to the detail reviews, now I haven't read this one, uh, but apparently um, some detailed reviews she talks a lot about in this book, apparently about Greek myth. And at least metaphorically connects abortion or the rationale as to why abortion is necessary to human sacrifices to the goddess Artemis. Artemis, the thonic deity. We're, we're <laughs> yeah, back exactly. to the pagan Artemis. Oh, my goodness. But th this is exactly the point that we've been making. Uh, trying to make. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now get this. This is even better. So. Jeanette Paris, PhD, is Emeritus Professor of Jungian and Archetypal Psychology at Pacifica <laughs> Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> Jungian so. and Archetypal Psychology, because, Dave, you, I, we should remind our- Can't make our, this up. Yeah, we should remind our listeners that one of the reasons we're on to paganism right now is because before paganism, we were, we were dealing with Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Peterson and the Jungian- Influences. And his union influences, that's right. And we realized that he was really ushering in a new wave of paganism. And that's what brought us to paganism. And there it is. Union and archetypal psychology. It's paganism all over again. This is the Knock and Form Show. Make sure you tell everyone you know. So having discussed the main features of Greco-Roman pagan sexual views and practices, let's turn to the impact that the rise of Christianity had on these views and practices. Um, and we've discussed this already a little bit uh, before, but for an overview, here is a one-minute clip from Smith's lecture. Christianity, by contrast, rejected these norms in favor of chastity and marriage. Sexual relations were permissible only between spouses. This conception expressed a Christian ideal of purity of the body as a temple of the Holy Spirit that pagans found almost incomprehensible. Conversely, as Kyle Harper observes, quote, for Paul, the sexual disorder of Roman society was the single most powerful symbol of the world's alienation from God. As Christianity became the dominant religion of the empire, Christian sexual norms gradually came to be reflected in law. Prostitution, enthusiastically supported under earlier emperors, now was not categorically prohibited, but at least regulated and discouraged. Pederasty and homosexual conduct were forbidden. In Rome, in short, the law reflected and reinforced the shift from pagan norms to Christian sexual morality, which in turn was a manifestation of the shift from the imminently religious pagan world to the Christian world oriented to a transcendent deity. Now, to put a finer point on Smith's observations, we can turn to Kyle Harper's book, on the subject, which is titled, as I might have uh, mentioned before, 
From Shame to Sin, Christian's Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. And Harper's main thesis, as the phrase of the title of the book, From Shame to Sin, suggests, is that in the ancient world, the norms around sexual activity were based on the concept of shame. Christianity changed this entirely and based sexuality on the concept of sin. According to Harper, quote, shame is a social concept instantiated in human emotions. Sin is a theological concept, end quote. So shame has to do with the way you feel about something, while sin has to do with how your actions or attitudes are viewed by a transcendent God. And recall that in Roman sexual ethics, for men, pretty much anything went, provided they did not violate the macho principle or that they didn't violate a freeborn woman. Women had to be chased until marriage. If you broke these social rules, it was shameful. And there would be social consequences, but breaking such rules was not considered sinful. Now, Harper focuses on the word pornea, which is translated as fornication, and argues that St. Paul's use of the term pornea or fornication, and I'm, we're thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians, completely changed the concept of sexuality in the Roman world. Now, of course, Paul was simply further expressing the Jewish views on the matter, ones we uh, find in the Old Testament, but it was the Christians who had the main impact on the Roman world through their evangelical outlook, as we said earlier. And according to the Christian Mm -hmm. writers, sexuality was to be restricted to the institution of monogamous marriage. Sex outside of marriage for men was no longer seen as a fine way to cool their passions. So Harper writes that, The Christian view was that, quote, fornication was an act of pollution in the sacred space of the body, end quote. And according to the Christians, sexual ethics were not socially constructed and governed by the principles of shame. Sexual ethics were divinely instituted and fell within the realm of good and evil. I have one more quote here from Harper, quote, Mm -hmm. Christian pornea would recast the harmless sexual novitiate that was an unobjectionable part of sexual life in antiquity as an unambiguous sin, a transgression against the will of God echoing in eternity. And so uh, you see this very big difference in sort of the ethical view of sexuality. The pagans, it was about just, was it shameful or not? But the Christians said, no, no, the issue is is whether it's sinful or not, whether it goes against the transcendent God's will. And I think it's fair to say that now we're seeing a return to the view that sexual ethics is really a socially developed construct. And again, it's not about right or wrong, but it's about acts that are maybe acceptable and acts that might be more shameful. Yeah. And so it all boils down to consent, right? So mm-hmm. the, uh, I saw an article where academics are arguing that we need to bring, build our, the sex robots that the industry is building now to have, be able to have consent built into them somehow. Yeah. It's ludicrous. Yeah. It's ludicrous. And now, Dan, I think the distinction that Harper makes, this is a really good distinction. It's a great, uh, there's a, that section of the book is excellent. Um, and I just wanted to uh, maybe f- put some meat on the bones there in terms of uh, some Bible passages that mm-hmm. uh, illustrate this. And again, I want to remind you, uh, you've already said this, but this didn't start with Christianity or it didn't start with the Apostle Paul. It didn't even start with Judaism. The um, 
the this concept goes right back to the very beginning um where god creates humans and he creates human sexuality and he's got a design for it and so he's the one who creates boundaries for sexual expression that is is safe and salutary for us to engage in and so if you look in genesis just genesis chapter one right at the very beginning of the bible we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So you have gender, male and female, right? You have sexuality, the, the way we reproduce, the way we make babies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, procreation. And, and God has given it as a good thing. And in chapter two, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so he, God institutes the, the, uh, the state of marriage, right? And this is where he, this is the boundaries that he places. And the rest of the Bible confirms this and agrees with this, um, how God, what God has intended for human sexuality, where it's to flourish and where it's to actually uh, bear some fruit in a very literal way in, in procreation. Mm-hmm. And it's not till later that people are making a mess of it after the fall that he has to give the Ten Commandments and, and further protect marriage by explicitly saying you shall not you shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And in Leviticus chapter 18, uh, God says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. And so God is creating boundaries because uh, because mankind is messing it up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's all before we get to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament and you see Jesus affirming what God said in the Old Testament. In Mark chapter 10, we read, but from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God is joined together, let not man separate. Um, and so that's even before we get to St. Paul, who then says to the Hebrews, mm-hmm. he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So we have these, we have this uh, from the very beginning, God has had his witness to what he's designed for sexuality and it predates, I just want to make it clear that this predates um, any kind of evolutionary notion or Christianity came along and then, you know, it transformed the world. No, it's just that Christianity had the, uh, was in a position where it was allowed to have an influence on society. But this idea goes right back to the very beginning. Indeed. Yeah. And it's very clear, for instance, uh, the prohibition against homosexuality and the sexual immorality. And we didn't even actually get into the sexual interaction with animals, which, you know, also happen in various parts of the pagan world. Uh, we didn't even, yeah. we didn't step That's into that too stuff. disgusting. I don't even want to go there. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, but what I do want to get into is the first Corinthians chapter six bit, where you talked about this idea that somehow, you know, if Jesus was around and, uh, you know, Paul was, they were all prude in a prudish world and they didn't know about this, they'd be okay with it if it wasn't that. Well, no, no, no. This is, there's absolutely no way to think of, to uh, support that kind of a thesis because in first Corinthians six, uh, beginning at verse nine, this is what Paul writes. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the, the, what the ESV translates here as sexually immoral, that's that word pornoi or pornos, right? Which you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, that um, Smith talks about. I mean, he had it translated as um, fornication, I think it was, right? Yeah. Fornication, which yep. is which is Which is what some English translations would do with this text, that the sexual immorality, fornication, um, you know, they're the, the same thing. And then uh, Paul has in the list, it's a list of, of terms, right? So the sexually immoral, so there's there's, there's the, the pornoi, and the idolaters, adulterers, and then nor men who practice homosexuality. Well, in, in the Greek, underneath that English, there's two terms, okay? There's two terms that translate, then the, the translators put into this phrase, and they refer to the passive and the active partners in homosexual acts, so you got the, he says, malakoi or the malakos, right? The, the effeminate homosexual, the passive bottom, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the translations say the effeminate there. Or the arsenokoitai, right? The, um, the, the male homosexual or the active top. So Paul's very aware of this macho principle and how it works out in his world. Um, he's fully aware of this, and he says, "Look, the, the the passive bottom or the active top, both of these will not inherit the kingdom of God." So he, he's he's categorically Christianity speaks against this because of the the damage it brings to society. Yeah, it's very interesting, Dave, because knowing the Roman history here and knowing the macho mm-hmm. principle, it really does help us understand the importance and the nuance of what, of what Paul is actually saying here. He's forbidding mm-hmm. both the active and the passive forms of homosexuality, whereas the Romans would be thumbs up for the active top and thumbs mm-hmm. down for the passive <laughs> bottom, right? That's right. Uh, but, That's right. But, and I, yeah. I, I mean, I knew about the fact that they're both these terms are in there for, you know, ever since I learned Greek, but the, 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 the understanding of why they were both listed separately, that, that actually, that wasn't until we started digging into this that I realized that. Yeah. So, so it's, it's good stuff. And, uh, later on in that passage, just a couple of verses later, this is where he as uh, as um, Smith talks about, this is where you get this idea about uh, the the idea that sexual immorality uh, is a sin, and that your the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and uniting yourself with a prostitute is doesn't make anybody and doesn't make any sense because when you're joined to the Lord, you don't want to be becoming one spirit with a prostitute, um, you know, and that you should glorify God in your body. This is all in that passage, First Corinthians chapter six. Uh, beginning at verse 9, going all the way down to verse 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we mentioned how Christianity uh, really ushered in a change in the Roman thinking, uh, taking sexual ethics from one of just shame to one of sin that's uh, determined by what a transcendental God dictates about about sexuality. But related to all this, and expanding on a point uh, you made earlier in the show, Dave, Christianity also made massive strides towards bringing about equality among people in society an Mm -hmm. idea that would be completely foreign to the pagan world because in the pagan world slaves were of lesser value than masters and prostitutes were of lesser value than free women and so on uh Mm -hmm. so okay so what's the evidence that christianity actually changed things well first of all the christian focus on restricting sexual activity to monogamous marriage for both women and men was radically different from the Roman view, which allowed men, but not women, to be promiscuous. 
So on the Christian view, both women and men were expected to be equally chaste. And I don't think it would be exaggerating to say that this new Christian view substantially disrupted the Roman social order. In fact, there are historians that the historians that I read said as much that this was very disruptive, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why the Roman world was trying to reject Christianity. But more broadly, Christianity argued that all people have equal value. And this meant that for the Christians, slavery and the exploitative sex trade were unacceptable. And as an example of the massive advances Christians made in eliminating the exploitation of vulnerable people, uh, I have a quote here from Harper. He says, quote, In AD 428, the Christian emperor Theodius II enacted a law banning the use of coercion in the sex industry. The law wished to repress the prostitution of slaves, daughters, and other vulnerable members of society, which was anything but a marginal part of the classical sexual order, end quote. So Christianity was instrumental in bringing about the end of slavery and forced prostitution in the Western world. So this was this was a massive, massive change. I've got a great, um, I want to read a couple of the opening paragraphs from that article that Peter sent us, Why Judaism and then Christianity Rejected Homosexuality. Okay. Because uh, even though I think Prager is, he's writing from a Jewish perspective. Um, at least that's the sense I got that he's a Jew. And so he's talking about Judaism. Mm-hmm. But um, as we said earlier, this goes back to Genesis and uh it's not about Judaism starting 3,000 years ago, Christianity 2,000 years ago. It's about what God had planned. But the, he makes some great points. He says this, When Judaism demanded that all sexual activity be channeled into marriage, it's changed the world. The Torah's prohibition of non-marital sex quite simply made the creation of Western civilization possible. Societies that did not place boundaries around sexuality were stymied in their development. The subsequent dominance of the Western world can largely be attributed to the sexual revolution initiated by Judaism and later carried forward by Christianity. This revolution consisted of forcing the sexual genie into the marital bottle. It ensured that sex no longer dominated society, heightened male-female love and sexuality, and thereby almost alone creating the possibility of love and eroticism within marriage, and began the arduous task of elevating the status of women. It is probably impossible for us who live thousands of years after Judaism began this process to perceive the extent to which undisciplined sex can dominate man's life and the life of society. Throughout the ancient world and up to the recent past in many parts of the world, sexuality infused virtually all of society. And so, I mean, one of the one of the claims he makes here, and I think he's absolutely right, is that it that it uh, it actually elevated the status of women. Indeed. And he points out, and I've heard this thesis put out elsewhere too, is that the societies like Greek society, which actually had romantic or erotic kind of love being male, male between males, it, it, it denigrated the status of women. They, they were either uh, there for just plain reproduction or to become, you know, the, the women in the brothels and to run the brothel or to run the household, but it, it denigrated their status and it's not until you get rid of that and you you uh, create and you put a high view of marriage and the estate of marriage and the family as as a as a main driver in in the fabric of society that you you get the elevation of the status of women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And I think one view that's being promoted by the liberal left right now is that women can elevate their status and become more like men by being just as promiscuous as men, by abandoning monogamous marriage and engaging in free sexual exploration like the men have in the past. And this is sort of a bizarre twist on equality because it tries to rectify the Roman pagan gender inequality, but in a radically different way than Christianity did. In fact, it's sort of opposite to Christianity. The modern movements encourage women to be equal to men by increasing their sexual promiscuity and sexual irresponsibility to match that of historically pagan men. Yeah, yeah. This, of course, doesn't elevate women at all. It does not make women more free than they were in the Roman world. Instead, it just makes them more freely available as objects of men's desires. Now... Men can even freely treat women who are not slaves as lustful objects, which they could not easily do in Rome. Because remember, the Romans weren't the Roman men weren't allowed to have promiscuous sex with freeborn women. So the feminists championing sexual promiscuity are playing right into the hands, literally, of the desires of men who often just treat them as their latest disposable sex objects. This is not an improvement. This freewheeling sexuality the women are encouraged to engage in these days. I think that for many women and for men, sexual promiscuity leads to psychological problems. And perhaps as a topic for, for a, another episode some other time. But the main point here is that the current sexual trends are certainly not an improvement over traditional Christian values. No, absolutely not. And one of the arguments we're going to make, um, whether it's in the Marxism episode or others, is that... Uh, this is uh, this reintroduction of pagan sexuality, or at least the renormalization of it, is part of an, uh, a movement to undermine the West and Western values and ultimately Christian values. It's paganism all over again. So in addition to ushering in equality among people, and asserting that all people are of equal value, the Christian revolution, and specifically the Christian sexual revolution, if we can call it that, uh, maybe Dave, we can call it the real sexual revolution. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, that could maybe be a show title. Yeah, that's not a bad one. I'll write it down. Okay, yeah. So the real sexual revolution also reflects a deeper shift in thinking about human agency when it comes to dealing with one's drives and desires. And the Roman world had various views on this, but one uh, maybe common belief was that one's sexual orientation and one's sexual drives were determined by external forces. Mm -hmm. And here's a relevant quote from Harper. He writes, quote, Against the threat of Gnostic determinism, amid a popular culture increasingly addicted to astrology, and in opposition to a philosophical culture with even more sophisticated accounts of moral causation, the Christians entered the fray with a message that was jarringly simple and distinctive. The individual, whatever his or her condition, was a moral agent with unqualified capability and responsibility. These crystalline notions of freedom and responsibility came to focus on the realm of moral behavior whose wellsprings might seem most inscrutable, sex." End quote. And in his book, Harper refers to writings from early Christians in Rome, in which the Christians argued against this uh, notion of astral determinism, which, uh, which is the then common view that the movements of the astral bodies like the stars and the planets determine our actions, including sexual drives and behaviors. 
Now, instead, the Christians claimed that people, those saved by Christ in particular, were not slaves to these external forces, but had the capacity to control their behavior. Now, of course, these ideas were also in Judaism, but it was the Christians who triggered the shift in the context of the broader Roman Empire. Yeah, Dan, what I find interesting is that it's precisely these ideas that started to come back during the Renaissance. Uh, There's a great course on the great courses. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called The Terror of History, Mystics, Heretics, and Witches in the Western Tradition. And the the second half deals with um, the Renaissance and the reintroduction of all these pagan ideas back into the West. And it was precisely these uh, astrology and hermeticism that everybody, all the elites were all gaga about Mm. and uh, bringing all this rubbish back. Now, just getting back to what you were talking about, the 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 influence, the Christian influence of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is precisely what St. Paul unpacks in Romans chapter 6. And you can go there and take a look, Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, and then just read for a couple paragraphs down to maybe like 23. And he talks about, he says, you know, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Right, and uh, and he talks about how we have been uh, baptized into Christ. We were buried with Christ, and uh, the uh, that put to death our, our our old self was crucified with him. He says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And he says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Mm-hmm. Um, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And then he says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And that was what the Roman world was all about, Mm -hmm. right? Being ruled by your passions. Then do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And later on, he says, for sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. And so he unpacks this whole freedom that we have now in Christ and uh, it's because of this new identity that we have. You know, we're not, we're not, we don't identify with our passions. We don't identify with our desires. We don't identify with our addictions. We yeah. don't even identify with our genes or, or our possessions or any of that. We are a new, a new being, a new person in Christ. And elsewhere, he says, "I no longer live, but Christ lives in me." Right? Yeah. Um, so there's a, a there's this freedom and a profound shift from the uh, um, the pagan world that you described to what the what the identity and sense of uh, um, even responsibility for your own actions that the New Testament has. Yeah, Dave, uh, as you were reading, I was reminded of Second Peter, and I just flipped to it, and I'm reading from chapter 1, verse 3, and it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And then it goes on for a while. Mm -hmm. And then picking Mm -hmm. up a little bit later, it says, uh, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. So there's the notion of self-control right there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it goes on, and uh, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, here, Peter is clearly saying that we do have this capacity for increasing our self-control, and that this uh, capacity is given to us through the power of Christ. 
Yeah, I, I'm thinking of another passage where Paul is writing to Titus and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so he's talking about this life. Uh, in Peter, he talks about, you know, being partakers of the divine nature. Elsewhere, he talks about uh, the life of, uh, you know, holiness. And that, that's what that's what we're called to as Christians. And, you know, to anyone out there that is, is trapped in, whether it be in pornography or maybe you've wandered down that road of, 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 some aberrant sexuality, uh, damaging, self-damaging sinful sexuality, um, or you know you, you you're struggling with any of these things. Uh, there is freedom there in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is forgiveness, and mm-hmm. and there's a there, there is a, a new you that Christ wants to give to you uh, that is not ruled by any of these things. So. I think it's really important for us to, uh, while we unpack the the negative stuff of the pagan world, to also uh, focus on what Christ has to offer us as an antidote to all this rubbish. Yeah. Now, Dave, some people might say that uh, the Christian views on sexuality were just a culmination of a natural progression or an evolution of Roman paganism. Uh, that, that somehow, even if Christianity weren't there uh, and, and hadn't intervened, there was already a progression in Roman paganism that was sort of uh, uh, changing and, and giving people more value and equality and maybe getting rid of slavery and all that kind of stuff. That Christianity really didn't play such a role. But this would be completely wrong. And mm-hmm. uh, I have a quote here from Kyle Harper who writes, quote, In no sense should early Christian sexual morality be construed as an offshoot of Roman conservatism, end quote. So the changes brought in by Christianity shouldn't be thought of as an evolution of Roman paganism because the Christian view was completely alien to the Roman pagan worldview. Yeah, Dan, I absolutely agree. And I find it very puzzling that that there are conservatives and Christians going back to these um, these pagan writers you can find uh, mm-hmm. Mar- meditations of marcus aurelius out there and and maybe this is part of that uh, false conservatism that is out there now but it, it's absolutely can't be confused with the radical change that christianity brings and christian thought brings to to f- to break the bondage of the pagan world yeah we'll have to do a whole episode on this because people might not know that many of the right-leaning movements and i'm thinking particularly of those in europe uh, that these movements are fundamentally pagan movements. And I think that some Christians who may not know this underlying dynamic are aligning themselves with these right-leaning movements because they have a common enemy, which is the Marxists on the left. And But in aligning with these right-leaning pagans, the Christians are maybe unwittingly starting to adopt some of the pagan views. So, uh, yeah, we do need to spend some time on this, maybe an entire episode. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is another episode. Anyways, we're getting pretty uh, long in the tooth here. This is going to be another monster episode. Yeah. If we don't cut it off now, why don't we, um, why don't we wrap this up here? Okay. So why don't I give a summary? So, so in summary, Roman paganism was heavily characterized by slavery, prostitution, homosexuality, uh, pederasty, abortion, and exposure. And these weren't minor trends in the Roman world. They were central characteristics of their society. 
And the emerging dominance of Christianity changed all of that and ushered in key ideas that would shape the Western world from then on. Christianity changed sexual ethics from being focused on shame to a focus on sin and what a transcendental God thought about sexuality. It affirmed the equal value of all people and told people that they could exert self-control to avoid sin. These notions were completely foreign to the Roman world. And unfortunately, the Christian values are quickly disappearing from our society because paganism is coming back. We are not progressing. The current sexual movements are not progressive. They are in fact regressive, regressing rapidly to the pagan world. Unfortunately, Dan, that's true and that's quite grim. But the upshot, of course, is that you're listening to the Not Conform Show. We unpack all these things and uh, and uh, give you a different perspective on how to reintegrate all these worldviews that are subversively uh, filtering into our society. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to thank all our listeners that have been with us. Uh, my kids that listen to the show uh, pointed out that when this show airs, it'll likely be on the one-year anniversary of our first episode. Woohoo! I think we released on February 3rd our first episode. And, nice. Um, yeah, as well as episode the introduction on the episode zero. And so likely this will air on, on uh, February 3rd by the time we get it out. That's cool. And so if you've been with us for the whole year, then uh, thanks for listening. And uh, thanks to everyone who sent us uh, articles and links and all those kinds of things to keep us going, especially to Peter for that excellent article from Crisis Magazine that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, Google shuffled it off into one of those secondary mailboxes, so I didn't get it till yesterday. But but, uh, that was an excellent read, and we might draw on some more of those insights for future episodes. Uh, if you would like to send us uh, articles, if we're we're looking for articles on witchcraft and Marxism, and of course any kind of propaganda-related articles, if you come across those, send those as well as anything you think you find interesting. And um, you can do that by emailing us at info at notconform.show. So info at notconform.show, and of course the website is notconform.show where you'll find all the individual episode pages and show notes and subscribe links and all that kind of stuff all right dave well i guess that's it for uh, this episode and we'll talk to you later looking forward to the next show dan